We're in this series called Life Together, and um, the first sermon was like four weeks ago, uh, and, and it dealt with community. And each each one is kind of a, it's it's a it's its own its own kind of sermon. So it, it doesn't really have like this flow in, in in terms of saying like if you miss that week, you're not going to get what this week is. And um, I I don't know if I should do a recap on it or not. Because it's available on iTunes, um, so you can just listen to it like four weeks ago, and um, we'll just—is that okay? Or you want to recap? No. Yeah. Re- recap or no recap? No. Yeah. Re- recap. Okay. I'm gonna try to make it short. Um, let's see. Where do I start? Okay. So community uh, it was God's plan. Uh, on on changing the world, it was how we were were meant to live is in community, and that even the disciples um, uh, struggled with that community since they say they had to be reminded over and over and over again to love one another, and that was even uh, towards the end of Jesus' life on earth as a man, and and they were sitting under his teaching for three solid years, but they still didn't get it, right? They still didn't get it, and. And what's what's uh, kind of funny about it all is Jesus purposely puts together people that are vastly different. Right. So you have Simon, the zealot and the tax collector. You have the sons of Zebedee and then you have those other fishermen. And he purposely puts people together because he cares about the people we become. So um, in our community, it shouldn't surprise us that um, we're so different and that we have problems and that we struggle with dying to ourselves and loving one another. And knowing this, it just shouldn't surprise us that community doesn't come easy. It comes with work and we're pretty much guaranteed um, that uh, that living in community will be difficult, that it will be because Jesus desires us uh, to see us to grow into a perfect community, even though we're imperfect people. Um, and even though we aren't perfect, we can still choose um, imperfect people to be part of a life. We can still choose. We can still want for people um, in our community not to live life alone, um, to, to let them know that they're wanted here, that they're accepted here and and to know them and to love them and to pray for them, uh, to encourage them and to lift them up. And um, I guess that's the recap. And you can listen to the more detailed part of it four weeks ago. So I guess the question is, how do we do all of this? Um, and so we're going to continue on this series. And the series uh, is called Life Together. And this sermon is uh, the topic is grace and truth. And let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for the people here. I pray, Lord, that um, you would continuously change us, change our hearts um, have us to be people that um, are just like you, Jesus. And it's so difficult because you are perfect, but we are striving for that. And we ask that you empower us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start out with a story. Um, and it's when Katie and I were dating. And so we dated for a week before she moved to San Sebastian, Spain. I guess things were going that bad. And so and so when she got there, um, someone or someone's, I don't know, stole her luggage and, and she didn't have um, a lot of the clothes that she brought with her. So she she wore like the same. Sorry, honey, like two or three pair that was there. And um, 
So one of her, one of her one of her favorite stores back then um, was Banana Republic. Not anymore since we've become hippies and now we buy organic cotton and all that stuff. But but back then it was like Banana Republic. And so there was a banana that was three blocks away from us uh, where I was working at the time. So so I went there. I went there to, to shop for her. And so I I got a suitcase and I and I shopped for her. And so um, so that I would give her this suitcase on my next visit. And so while I was shopping for her, I found that that there was a corner of the store and it's in the second story, uh, Embarcadero, Banana Republic, in the second story. And in the corner, uh, there are items for sale. And um, it's an entire area that that uh, had things for sale where you could would get pretty good deals on them and even. Um, even now, where, where, whenever I'm in that area, when I'm meeting with someone in San Francisco or whatever reason I'm there, um, I have to stop by that store to get Katie something because it's just like this tradition. Like I have to. I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna spend money. And, um, and anyway, this the sales corner is is actually um, in a lot of stores, right, or on the side of a wall, and you're able to find bargains there. And it's usually marked by like uh, these different colored stickers or placards that that tell you that items are marked down or that they're a good deal. And there are some other parts of, of some other stores where there's this other section that it's like the as is section or the irregular section. Right. And this is just like a politically correct way of saying that these articles of clothing are, are damaged, damaged goods. And so something is wrong with that piece of clothing or accessory, whether there's a hole on it or, or a rip somewhere or a stain all on it or a zipper that won't zip or a button that won't butt. And so, you know, before you even look at it, that there's a flaw there because you're told that there's a flaw there. Right. That they usually don't tell you exactly what the flaw is, but, you know, it's there. And some of us buy as is clothes. And, and we know that there's no complaining about it. That's why it's marked down. That's why it's at the price that it is. And we know that there are no exchanges. There are no refunds. And we know we're getting a good deal because it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we've been told that the items are imperfect and we and we still want them. But it's at our own risk now. Right. And now. Don't, don't you think it would be great if there was like a color code or a placard or some type of sticker or some type of marketing thing to make people aware of one another? Think about this, right? So let's take single folks, for example. Can you imagine if churches and schools, dating services or any place that had singles in it? Can you imagine if each single person had to wear something identifying who they were? So a tag would read something like um, self-confidence is lacking. Right? Or poor communicator or uh, inability to uh, inability to commit. Right. Um, talks too much. Uh, very needy and clingy. Uh, no sense of humor. Mama's boy. So so if we had if we had these tags on us, how many of us would be married? Now, now take a quick. Look at the person sitting next to you. Just a quick one for um, some of you single guys, because you might stumble if you look too long. Um, the person next to you has a tag on them and it says irregular. All of you. OK. And some of you are sitting next to people with tags on them that read incredibly irregular. And there's a tag on the person next to you that also says as is. 
All of you. So, so knowing this, that everyone has an as-is tag on them, everyone has an irregular tag on them, and we know not to expect perfection, right? Just like the rack. And that's not to say perfection isn't strived for, but we all know that we aren't there yet. We aren't perfect yet. There's a yet aspect into perfection. And we all know that we have flaws. We all have irregularities. So why are we so shocked to find flaws and irregularities in people? Why is that so shocking? And you know how we live life together, how we live as a community? We realize that we are all irregular. And we realize that we're all flawed. And in our church, we are bound to find people who have as-is tags on them. And and the as-is tag doesn't have any biases. It's it's on people who are married or single, people who who have children or don't have children, who are young or or, uh, more mature or male or female. Um, The the ones who have jobs, the ones who don't have jobs, the the wealthy, the not-so-well-off, it hits all of us. And... How do we create a loving community? How do we live life together successfully in our church when everyone is so flawed? Have you noticed that some of Jesus' most well-known teachings and often some of his most misunderstood teachings are about difficult relationships? And so you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 through 41, and this is what Jesus says. Verse 39, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Some people misunderstand what Jesus is teaching in this section of scripture because they don't understand his style of teaching. And Jesus had a method of teaching, just like most teachers do. And in this segment of scriptures, Jesus isn't giving us laws or rules to live by. And some people think of these teachings as laws or rules because um, I don't know why they do. But because of that, they, they look at them and they observe them in a legalistic way. So what, what, what Jesus is sharing here is not meant to be lived out in a legalistic way. And what Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting life in the kingdom of God, uh, contrasting the, the way we should live in the kingdom of God to that of the world, to the life of the world. And he's contrasting the wisdom in, in God's kingdom to the wisdom of the world. And these aren't rules. These aren't laws. So let's take a look at an example found in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And here we find Jesus teaching in the midst of people who are talking about seats of honor. Luke chapter 14, verse 12, starting in verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, clearly, Jesus taught that we shouldn't have our relatives over for dinner. So so do you realize what I've just done for some of you? Some of you have been praying how to keep family away, how to keep your in-laws away. And I've just told you where the scripture reference is. I will take a collection later. And you can make checks payable to Albert Lee and we're all good. After the service... Get on your cell phone, tell your relatives that Jesus says you can't come over anymore. 
Is Jesus really saying that it's wrong for us to ask our relatives over for dinner? Yes. No. No, he's not instructing us to do that. Some of you wish that he was instructing for us to do it, but he's not. So, so what is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is he's contrasting life and wisdom in the kingdom of God to the life and wisdom of the, of the world. And one of Jesus' teaching methods was this. And often people misunderstand Jesus' teaching when they, when they turn them into laws or rules to be lived out in, in a legalistic way. Legalism doesn't work. Legalism tends to make people falsely believe that righteousness can be earned. Righteousness can't be earned. Righteousness is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. And, and the life and wisdom of the world tells us to do something for someone when, when they can do something for you in return. The whole reciprocity thing, right? That you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, I'll do you this favor, but you do me this favor. But Jesus instructs us that life in the kingdom, that the wisdom of the kingdom has nothing to do with what someone is able to do for you. Jesus tells us something that is totally different from worldly wisdom. And he tells us that we can do nice things for people who can't do anything in return. And we can do things, good things for people with no strings attached, with no conditions attached. And Jesus illustrates this for us in the passage we just read in Luke chapter 14. He mentions the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And these are people who back in that time, they had no way to re- repay who, who gave towards them. And these people had obvious as-is tags on them. And every so often, Jesus reminds people to forget about being self-centered and to be other-centered, to give out of love without expecting anything in return. And Jesus is not instructing us to be legalistic about it. He's illustrating to us what life is like in the kingdom of God. And in our world, people want revenge. They want to pay back wrongs. They don't want to do things for people who can't do things in return. So that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. And in applying Jesus' teachings, it requires discernment, it requires judgment, it requires maturity. It's really important for us to understand the way Jesus teaches because he desires a community of changed lives. So how do we deal with as-is people? How do we live life together in community even though we are all as-is people? Well, we have to extend grace. We have to extend truth. We need both. We need both grace and truth. Now, what is grace? A really simple definition of grace is that it's a a gift of radical acceptance. Now, what is truth? A simple definition of truth is that it's the gift of pointing out reality. Now, let's first talk about grace. In Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Paul writes, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Do you notice how Christ has accepted us? How did Christ receive us? As is. As is. There were no stipulations, no conditions, no strings attached. In Brennan Manning's book, Ruthless Trust, he writes, There is nothing any of us can do to increase God's love for us and nothing we can do to diminish it. There isn't anything you have to do to make yourself better than you are. You don't have to make sure you're presentable before God. You don't uh, uh, you are accepted and wanted just the way that you are. 
And God's love is unconditional. God's love is complete. And God cannot love you any more or any less than he already does. And Paul is writing for us to receive one another, to accept people the way that they are, just as Jesus accepts each one of us the way that we are. And do you ever wonder why some Christians make it difficult to live life as a Christian? Because we want to change people into becoming more like us instead of becoming more like Jesus. And we have all these things we want to change about people, what they look like and what we want them to do or not do. And it's mostly trying to get people to stop things most of the time, right? Like, oh, you now you're a Christian. You shouldn't smoke. You shouldn't drink. You should you shouldn't dress like that anymore. Shouldn't listen to secular music and all this other stuff. Why are we so focused towards behavior modification rather than a spiritual transformation? Why do we put so much energy into behavior modification? And I'm not saying that Christians should just do as we please according to our flesh. What I am saying is that we tend to focus on things of the flesh rather than spiritual things. And we tend to fight uh, a spiritual battle through the flesh. And let me try to give you a cool picture of grace. Several years ago in, in a small southern Ohio town called McDermott, there was this uh, high school football game. And, and on the football team was this kid named Jake Porter. And Jake had a chromosomal fragile X syndrome, which is a disorder that, that is a common cause of mental retardation. And so Jake couldn't read. Uh, He could barely write his first name. He couldn't play sports like the other kids, but that didn't stop his love for football. He loved football. And throughout high school, he'd he'd go to practice. He'd dress. um, He'd even dress for the games and stand on the sideline and cheer uh, with everyone. Um, But he wasn't allowed to play. So this was the last season. Jake's a senior. And this is the last um, game of Jake's football career really he can't do anything after this and so knowing this um, Jake's coach and also his friend Dave Franz uh, really wanted to see Jake play in a real game so before the game he he calls up the opposing coach Derek DeWitt and he lets uh, Derek know about Jake and his situation and what's what's going on and what he'd like to see and and they kind of make a deal saying like you know if the score's really lopsided can can I just put him in for that one last play and so they agree. And so um, he said, well, OK, so we're, we're working on this play that, that Jake will, will just go straight down on a knee. And so no one will get hurt. Nothing will happen. He's just going to get the ball. We're going to hand it off to him because he played halfback and he's just going to go on a knee. And that'll be it. But, but he got to play and it's a harmless play. But then uh, Coach DeWitt, he uh, disagreed with him. He said, no, I don't want that. I want him to score. And so they're like, no, we, you don't have to do that. You know, you're going into the playoffs next week. Your team's really good. And our team, you know, we're just playing. And uh, we'll, a knee's good enough. A knee's, we don't have to do anything more. And so they just kind of like, okay, whatever. And so it's game day. And the two high school teams meet. And, and they're playing this football game that's like 42 to 0. And um, just like a Raiders game or 49ers game. And, um, and so... Jake's team is is losing with five seconds left, right? And it's just an ugly game. And why are Bay Area football teams so bad anyway? Except for the Bears, sorry. Bears. So 42 seconds left. Coach Franz called a timeout so that he could put Jake in for that final play. And so um, then 
Coach DeWitt comes running out on the field, and he, and so Coach Fran sees him. He's like, well, what's happening? I thought we agreed on this. And, and so they talk about it, and they're, like, arguing. They're like, oh, you just see hands and stuff like this and like this. And, and um, because they all worked it out prior to the game. But Coach DeWitt um, is insistent that he scores. And he tells Coach Francis that he wants Jake to score. And Coach Francis is debating with the other one saying, well, we can't do that. We just practiced taking a knee. He can't do this. And he's like, no, I, I don't want I want him to score. And he's like, but you're going to lose your shutout. And it's like your first shutout. And and so he was like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I want him to score. And so Coach Franz got, gets a little worried because it's like we didn't practice that. He just practiced giving Jake the ball and taking a knee. And we didn't practice scoring a touchdown. And the other coach just assured him that if you just give him the ball, everything will be OK. Right. I will make sure Jake scores. And so Coach Franz runs to the, to the huddle and he points to Jake and he tells Jake, you're going to the big house. You're scoring a touchdown. And Jake is ecstatic and he's jumping up and down in the huddle. And Coach DeWitt goes and he huddles his defense and he says, they're going to give the number to number 45. Do not touch him. Open up a hole and let him score. Understand? So, yeah. Team understands. The teams line up. The quarterback calls for the ball. He hands it to Jake. And the last five seconds is where these memories are made. And the first thing Jake did when he got the ball is he, he started to go down on a knee. They practiced that like a lot of times. So he's going down on a knee. And the, and the teammates and everyone's like, no, no. And, and don't go down. And he's like, oh, kind of confused, right? Like, don't go down. Okay. And so he looks at his teammates and they're pointing him towards the end zone. He takes a few steps there. And then he kind of turns around. He goes in the wrong direction. And, he's, and then like, oh, no, that way. And so and, and they're pointing him to the, the line of scrimmage to go to score. And everyone's pointing him towards the end zone. And, and all the coaches and all the teams and and everyone's holding up their helmets and like cheering for him and everyone's pointing towards the end zone cheering for him to score a touchdown so Jake starts taking some steps in that direction and the crowd is getting loud and stuff and they're cheering and he starts running and he runs 49 yards uh, which took him 12 seconds to run and while he's running everyone is cheering him on the players, the coaches, the referees even the opposing side everyone is cheering for Jake to score a touchdown and after he crosses the line, the fans go crazy. They would go berserk. It was just people crying and hugging and giving high fives to each other, even opposing teams, right? And, and cheering and jumping, just this explosive roar from the bleachers. There were a lot of teenagers that were playing in that game, and none of them will forget what happened in that game. And they'll probably forget a lot of things that happened in their football games that they were a part of, but none of them will forget about that touchdown. This is a picture of grace. The message of grace is you belong here. Grace tells people you're valued and, and lets people know you are you are wanted. And it and it says that without any conditions, you, you can just be you. You don't have to be any better, any smarter, any faster, any bigger, any thinner, any anythinger. And, and God loves you. Just the way that you are. And grace is the reason why sinful people flock to Jesus. And it's the same reason why people flock to him now. Jesus walked around telling people to score a touchdown. Not just take a knee or stand on the sidelines, but you're going to score. You're going to score and I'm going to make sure of it. And no matter what condition you have, that you matter, that you belong, that you are valued, that you are wanted. 
Something about the opposing coach, Derek DeWitt, which is so awesome. He, he was the first black coach in the history of a conference made up of schools along the Ohio-Kentucky border. And he heard the N-word on road games. But he was willing to give up his first shutout for a white kid he met a couple hours ago. He was ext- able to extend grace, even though it wasn't extended to him. And he extended it to someone who couldn't repay him. That's Jesus. And all sorts of different people who were as is people heard Jesus telling them and showing them that he wanted them in his life, that that's the grace of God. We can't successfully live life together without grace. We can't expect changed lives in our community without grace. But it can't just be grace. Grace has this partner and this partner is called truth. Let me tell you about a man named Eli who had problems with truth. Eli was a priest in the Old Testament who was also a dad. And as a priest, Eli served God and he loved God. But he had these two questionable, questionable sons named Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests. But they were corrupt priests. They were immoral. They were unethical. And they did things that were just sinful. They, they seduced and abused uh, sexually abused women. They stole from people who were giving to God. They just weren't good people. And even though Eli wasn't corrupt himself, he knew what his sons were doing. He tried to do something about it one time. But even at that, it was just this pretty weak attempt. And he could have done something more, maybe even stop what his sons were doing, but he didn't. Why didn't he try harder? Perhaps he was afraid of not being liked. Perhaps he didn't like conflict. Maybe he reasoned to himself that things would change in the future, that they would grow up. Maybe he misinterpreted grace as being nice and non-confrontational. But where, where did his lack of action, his, his lack of delivering the truth and his definition of grace lead him and his sons? His sons destroyed everything he dedicated his life to. All of Eli's lifelong work was for naught. They brought judgment, the judgment of God upon themselves, and they ruined their lives. And do you wonder why Eli didn't do anything? Why Eli didn't tell them the truth as to what would happen to them if this continued? And sometimes we have issues with truth. We know people are heading down this destructive path, and yet we still don't tell them. And we rationalize to ourselves as to why we don't speak the truth, whether it's hurt feelings or a desire to be liked or being uncomfortable or whatever. Do you guys remember that scene from A Few Good Men? Um, it's a classic scene. Of course you guys know this. When Tom Cruise, who, who plays the prosecutor and he interrogates Jack Nicholson and the defendant. He, and so Jack asks, you want answers? And Tom says, I want the truth. I'm glad you guys are saying that. I just spit a lot. And. And then what does Jack say? You can't handle the truth, right? And Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, we have a decision to make. Do you believe in Jesus, or do you believe in Jack? Right? I don't believe in Jack. I believe in Jesus. You know what I notice? And I'm speaking in general terms, of course. But I noticed that most of us wrestle with either grace or truth. 
And it's usually one or the other. Now, now ask yourself if you struggle more with grace or if you struggle more with truth. And while we struggle with one or the other, Paul encourages both grace and truth. In Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Paul writes, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. This is in regards to grace. He also writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is in regards to truth. Grace and truth are both necessary in successfully living life together, living in community together. And while I was away on mission, while I was away on vacation and guest teaching at another church's retreat for the past several weeks, I was confronted with some truths regarding my life. And I thought I knew so much, but I was shown that I don't. And I was grateful for these hard lessons, but it wasn't fun for me. And some of you kind of look like you're interested in what those truths are that I was confronted with. Um, I'm not going to tell you. At least not for free. And um, But we all need truth in our lives. Right? There's something that, that we have to be aware of, though. We, we have to be aware that we can't have truth without grace. And some of us think, and, and I think I fall into this myself, um, some of us tell the truth too well. Right? We can, we can lay out the truth about things, but perhaps we need some help on the grace side of things. And, and then there are those of us who have an abundance of grace with little or no truth. It's just all grace. And that's not healthy either. Let's take a look at Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. This is a story about a group of men who, who caught a woman committing adultery. It says, uh, verse 3, chapter 8 of John. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they sat in their, in her, set her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? These guys really don't care about this woman. She's just being used to try and entrap Jesus with the law, a law which they knew very well. And these guys had truth, but they didn't have grace. Now, let me ask you this. Are you looking to stone people? Do you ever find yourself with a stone in your hands? Do you have a judgmental attitude? Do you have a, a self-righteous thoughts? I was raised in the church. Church has been part of my life ever since birth. And I love church. I love the church. I believe the church is necessary. I believe it's important. But I wonder why the church has so many people in it that look to throw stones and enjoy it. Have you ever been to churches where you walk in and you just kind of feel the warmth? You feel the warmth of the people? And um, I have. And it makes you want to be there and... But have you also been to churches where you walk in and it's just cold? That they didn't celebrate outwardly and there's little emotion. You just couldn't sense that much joy unless it was something like judging people or being overly critical of people. So a stone was picked up when someone's marriage was struggling. A stone was picked up when 
someone's kid was acting up, a stone was picked up when the pastor preaches or someone else that they don't want in the pulpit preaches. A stone was picked up when the worship leader chose a song that wasn't like the stone was picked up when the leadership made a decision that was disagreed with. Whatever the reason, a stone was picked up. You know what? Living life together is really tough if you're in a community with people who want to throw a stone at you. Not exactly a nurturing environment. And so throwing stones doesn't have too many good purposes in mind, does it? In fact, I think the outcome's pretty bad if you throw a stone at someone. I think the intention is to hurt. The intention is to cripple. The intention is to kill. Yet people like doing it, and it continues to happen even though it causes so much harm. We're not innocent of this. It happens in our body. I hear of it all the time, even towards me. And that, that doesn't sound like living life together to me. And it sounds like abuse. It sounds like assault. That's what it sounds like to me. And if you have that sort of heart that enjoys passing judgment, um, you don't have the heart to live life together in community. Your heart is to destroy rather than to build. And Jesus had some words for those who looked forward to throwing stones that start in John chapter 8, verse 7, back to John chapter 8, starting in verse 7. He, was, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Let me stop there for just a moment, because I want to point out that that's the grace of God. And we can read from these verses, there was no condemnation from Jesus. But now let's look at the latter part of verse 11. Go and sin no more. That's truth. That's truth. Jesus showed her grace by rescuing her from her accusers, not condemning her. And then he shares with her a truth. Go and sin no more. That's grace and truth. Jesus is the master of delivering grace and truth. While I was in Kenya several weeks ago, I noticed students who were really supportive of one another. And for those of you who don't know, a region supports an orphanage and a school in Nakuru, Kenya. And we have for years, it's a, it's a Christian school and orphanage with over 300 kids. And, and the high school students, they often have these gatherings um, like chapel or assemblies. And during these gatherings, there's an MC that's picked um, for this gathering. And, and the student leader would randomly call out other students to share something about God. So these students would share Bible verses or sing worship songs or give a testimony, share something that God was teaching them, give a sermon, whatever was on their heart. And I'm thinking about doing that here, so you guys be ready. Yeah, yeah, okay. None of the students ever said no, so I expect the same out of our people here. And so anyway, the, the student would be called out and come to the front of the room, and, and if it was a really shy student, they'd sometimes joke with them, like, ah, like point at him, whatever. And then the student would start doing whatever was on their heart. And sometimes the other students would just observe, but oftentimes there was some feedback. And if the students were doing well, they would encourage them by laughing at their jokes or singing along with them or taking notes, just showing them that there's support there. And if the student wasn't doing so well, 
you know, singing off key or off rhythm, whatever, they'd, they'd still encourage them. They'd still sing along with them. They'd still yell out supportive words. They'd still clap for them. They'd still support them. Wouldn't it be great if all Christian communities were like that? To be there for people whether they're doing well or not doing well? What if we became a community so full of grace, so full of truth, that we could cheer people on with grace and truth, whether they're doing well or if they're doing poorly? And what if we loved people into the kingdom of God, showing them grace, told them the truth, but we didn't throw a stone at them in the process? That's a way to live life together. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending us Jesus, your son, to show us how to live. We ask, God, that your spirit would empower us to live lives of grace and truth, to extend both grace and truth. Lord, I ask that you would give us um, a healthy filling of both, that we need both. We ask, Lord, that you would transform our community to become closer that you would make us more into family. God, I ask for those that kind of feel outside that uh, we would kind of open our doors and accept them in whenever they, they decide to walk through. And for those of us who are inside already, that we wouldn't kind of just be self-absorbed and just caring for what we have already, but that we would look outward and be other-centered, even towards people who can't repay us. In Jesus' name, amen.